Well, good morning. What role does worship play in, in your life? And what role is worship supposed to play in the, in the life of a believer? We gather on Sunday mornings to do worship. How does it impact us? What is it supposed to do in our lives? You know, so today we are continuing a sermon series entitled Cultivating Your Faith. And the premise of the sermon series is that we are called not only to believe, but to follow. To not only have mental assent, but to grow spiritually, to become more like Jesus, his values, his priorities, his personality, his responses, to become more like him. How do we how do we do that? How do we cultivate our our faith so that happens? Well, we began by looking at Jesus teaching in in Luke eight, where he uses a parable about a, a man who sows seed and throws it on different types of soil and. And, and there's different responses to the, to the, to the seed on the soil. And, and Jesus makes the point that if you want to grow your faith, if you want to be productive for Jesus, that you not only need to hear God's word, but you need to put it into practice. The next week we looked at Jesus again, this time in John 15, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's going to leave them uh, in just a short time, so night before he goes to the cross, and he tells them that it's important that they abide in him, that he's the vine and and, and that they are the branches. And we, we saw that to grow our faith, that the thing that God wants most for us is to know his love, to experience his love, to remain in Jesus and his love. And out of that, we'll be productive, we'll bear fruit, we'll, we'll cultivate our faith. Last week we looked at um, a Paul a prayer in Colossians chapter 1, where, where Paul prays for the Colossians, the believers in Colossae. And the thing he prays most for them is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Today we're looking at the role of worship. How is worship meant to grow and cultivate our faith? Why do we gather together to worship? In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis wrote, The world is always singing praises. Just not always God's. What does he mean? Well, as human beings, we are created by God for worship. We're created to, to worship. And, and, and what that means is that we are constantly worshiping things, singing the praises of something or someone, even if it's a poor facsimile of, of true worship. For example, if you discover a great restaurant, what do you do? You tell people about it. You sing the praises of that restaurant. It's the base, best steak I've ever had. The service is, is remarkable. Or, or you discover a, a great vacation spot. You've got you've to go to this resort or you've got to hike to this lake. It's, a, it's the best experience. and It's the next best thing to heaven. Well, you meet somebody and you think that they're the one. And, and you have to tell your friends and family, she's the one. She's amazing. You just got to meet her. I can't believe that she wants to spend time with me, that she, she loves me. Or we praise experiences, don't we? You just have to go to a game at Arrowhead Stadium, go Chiefs. Instinctively, innately, we, we, we offer praise. We shower praise on the things that are most important, most uh, impactful in our lives. As C.S. Lewis asserted, we really do sing praises, just not always God's. 
And if that's true, and I believe that it is, then it's important that we take a, a look at what it means to worship biblically. So let's start with where worship begins. There's a French proverb that says a good meal ought to begin with hunger. You know, it's hard to enjoy a great meal when you're stuffed. You've been snacking all day long. But when you're starving, just about anything tastes good. Same is true with worship. When we approach worship with a, a hunger for God, for God, starving for a, a spiritual connection, experience with Him, we will always be satisfied and, and filled. And on the other hand, if we enter into worship with little or no appetite for God, then more than likely we're going to be frustrated or apathetic because we've been snacking on spiritual junk food, other things. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That hunger is a, is a need for God, a deep inner longing for Him. That is, where, that is where worship begins. So hunger for God is, a, is the precursor for an encounter with the living Lord. Now, a couple of asides here. When people are truly hungry, they're generally not too picky about what they are offered. Draw the connection. Another note aside, we create physical hunger by doing what? By If you want your kids to eat something, you don't give them snacks. You, you, you say, no, you have to eat your vegetables, and eventually they'll eat them because they're hungry enough. But spiritually, it can actually work the other way because a lack of time with God can actually dull our spiritual hunger and our sensitivity to Him and His Spirit. While regular time with Him in His Word, in prayer, in personal and corporate worship will increase our hunger and our desire for Him. So, I'm going to encourage you now as we look at this topic to, to turn to Isaiah 6. It's a different passage than what's listed on the worship guide. But Isaiah 6 is one of my favorite passages about worship. It's a passage that I've preached before uh, and I want, I want to share it with you again this morning. Let's pick it up in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their Voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried as Isaiah. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your sin is, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah, he said, I said, Here I am, send me. So from this passage, we're going to make four statements about, about worship. First, worship is seeing God for who he really is. It's got to start here. True worship is, is transformational. 
And transformation begins when we encounter God and see Him. And we just get a glimpse of His, his glory and His holiness and His, his perfection, his, his majesty, His beauty. It's sort of like, it's always false sort, any sort of analogy false sort, but it's sort of like when you, when you meet a, a famous person, a, you know, a politician that you really admire or, or a, a superstar athlete or, or a celebrity actor or a musician, something like that, and, and you get a chance to, to greet them, maybe to shake their hand, to get an autograph, get a, get a picture. It's something that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life. You're going to tell that story many, many times. In worship, when we are in the presence of unimaginable power and immense goodness, when we see, when we get a glimpse of, of God for who He is, when we focus on that, we are, we are changed. True worship. An encounter with a God who created the universe should stick with us. It should transform us. It should move us to tell that story over and over and over again. I mean, look again at verse 1. He says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. And there's these seraphs, six wings, and they're flying around. And what are they calling? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. You know, one of the dangers that we can face as human beings when dealing with God is that we tend to pick out and focus on a few select aspects of his personality, his character, and, and, and focus on them to the exclusion of the others. So, for example, Scripture tells us that, that God through Christ can be approached with confidence. That is true. It tells us that God is our friend, that he's close and personal loving. That is also true. We should celebrate that. That should be emphasized. But we must not neglect or ignore the fact that God is also holy and unbelievably perfect and all-powerful and all-consuming fire, Scripture says. And in these verses, we see these seraphs, heavenly creatures, who, who cover their faces because they can't bear to look God in the, in the face. And as they cover their faces, they proclaim His, his perfection, His blazing holiness, and how his glory is revealed in all of creation. That's the God that we worship also. Now, there are two primary words used in Scripture for worship. One of them literally means to, to bow down in, in humility and, and submission and adoration. And if we truly see God for who he is, then that will be our response. I think Annie Dillard's got it right when she says that if we really had any idea of who we are dealing with, when we come to worship, we put on crash helmets and, and lash ourselves down to our, our pews and our chairs. Worship begins with seeing God for who he really is. Next, worship is seeing ourselves for who we really are. True worship causes us to see our desperate need for the Lord, and it, it humbles our heart. In verse 5, Isaiah's response is what? Woe is me. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips, and I live amongst a bunch of people who have unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the God, this God, this incredible, holy, perfect God, the King, the Lord Almighty. And Paul expresses the, the universality of, of Isaiah's response in Romans 3.23, where he says, For all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we hear this, we, we know this, but do we, does it really impact us? Or do we just kind of move on to, to, to worship? 
You know, a, a while back I was kind of doing a little looking at a few YouTube videos. You know how sometimes things will pop up, uh, suggestions. And I was looking at some some uh, some Usain Bolt. You remember Usain Bolt? Fastest human being who's ever lived, recorded times. It's incredible. And I, I spent a few minutes looking at three or four of his best races. And, and it's just incredible how much faster he was than the absolute fastest people on earth. I mean, it, it's amazing. And I started thinking, calculating, how big of a head start would he have to give me <laughs> so I could beat him? You know, I, no matter how hard I would train, no matter what I tried, I could never come close to matching his level of speed and athleticism. Intellectually, we, we, know, we know we fall short of, 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 of God's standards, but it must move beyond mere intellectual ascent to a humility before God. I mean, the very best of us may run faster and farther morally than, than a lot of other people, but no matter how good we may be in comparison to others, we fail miserably when measured against God. In true worship, there is no pride. There is no comparison. There is no room for self-justification. And so standing in the presence of God, Isaiah became painfully aware of his sinfulness. It drove him to pronounce, I'm ruined, which is the natural response to being in God's presence. We are, we are convicted. The closer I walk with God the more quickly I feel my sin and realize how much I need him. It's sort of like a huge mirror with a bright light. From a distance, things look pretty good. But I move closer to the mirror and I notice, oh, my, my shirt's wrinkled. Or, or the, the tie's got a stain on it. Or, 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 or my hair's messed up. Or, or it starts a little bit higher up on my forehead. You know, or there's some wrinkles there that didn't used to be there. Uh, the closer I get to the bright light, the more I realize my defects. It's the same when we get close to God. We realize how much we need him and how far short we fall of his holiness. And if we were left there, seeing God for who he is and seeing us for who we are, we'd, we'd have nothing but despair and hopelessness. And, and condemnation, and maybe just give up. But worship is also experiencing the mercy of God, the, the, the grace of God, the, the love of God. Look again at verse 6. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So just when Isaiah thinks he can't stand to be in God's presence, he's, it's overwhelming, he's going to be destroyed, his eyes focus in on one of these seraphs flying to him with a, with a live coal. And it's taken from the altar, the altar of sacrifice. The altar that symbolized the perfect sacrifice that Jesus would make for the sins of the world. And so despite this huge gap between his life and God's standards, Isaiah is about to receive mercy to experience grace and love. In the movie The Last Emperor, the young child anointed as the last emperor of the Chinese king, uh, emperor, em, empire lives a life of luxury with a thousand servants at his command. And his brother one day asks, what happens when you do something wrong? 
He says, when I do something wrong, somebody else is punished. And he broke a jar and a servant was disciplined. Philip Yancey relates this story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And then writes, in Christianity, Jesus reversed that ancient pattern. When the servants erred, the king was punished. And grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. Worship involves an experience of God's mercy, of his love, of his, uh, of his grace. And then it involves a response of, of gratitude, of unreserved joy. And people who have really understood who God really is and who they really are, and who have received God's mercy through faith in Christ, they're going to worship God, not just on Sunday, but every day of the week. You know, this past week, uh, some of us staff were in Jacksonville, Florida. I know it was rough. Um, but uh, usually, usually our midwinter gatherings are in Chicago or Denver. For whatever reason, they chose Jacksonville, so we were thankful for that. But the first night, it was, just, it was a worship service. It was a little bit different. Usually there's some worship and then a speaker or a concert or something like that. But this year, it was just sheer worship. Sure, singing for about an hour. Uh, and, and our worship leader led us through the old hymns of the faith, moving through each decade, and, and, then, and then finishing with very current songs. And, and we just stood and we sang, and when people raised their hands and people sat or kneeled, and, and, and there was a strong sense of, of God working in our midst, of God speaking to us. And we felt strengthened, we felt assured, we felt convicted, we felt forgiven, we were, we were, we were humbled. We experience God's grace and mercy. The last element we look at here in Isaiah 6 is that worship then invokes a response. It, it draws us into, into ministry. Verse 8, Then I, Isaiah, heard the voice of the Lord calling, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. What is the result of worship? It's to lead us into a response, to share our faith, to proclaim God's goodness and his holiness and his mercy. It should change us. It should motivate us to take risks for God, to sacrifice for him and for others. Because worship is not primarily about what we get or that experience that we want. It's about what we can give. It's not about our preferences or our opinions. It's about God. And the sooner that we understand that, the sooner that worship will, will change us. And the more we'll know God's power and presence is supposed to shake things up. To convict, to assure, to comfort, to challenge. It's supposed to change our values and our priorities because as we see God more clearly, we align ourselves more with him and his priorities. And it should shake up our, our church with, with deeper relationships and crystallize what's truly important, the good news of Jesus being proclaimed to a world that desperately needs good news. And worship should, should shake up our community. Changed, empowered, spirit-filled people and churches are God's designated agents of change in the world. And worship, when people see, uh, see people worshiping God and encountering the Lord, it's, it's compelling like a magnet drawing them to Jesus. So let's, let's review. If we are followers of Jesus, our worship should reveal God for who he really is. It should focus on that. If we understand God's grace, we should come to worship with humility, understanding and seeing ourselves for who we really are, sinners in need of, of grace. 
And if we are to and if we if we understand who we are without Christ in worship, we we should receive and celebrate God's mercy and grace and love. And it should lead us to a response. To change how we use our time and our resources, what we value, how we think, how we relate to others. There's a thought provoking quote by uh, Leland Riken, a professor at Wheaton College about worship. He writes earlier in this century. Someone claimed that we work at our play and play at our work. Today, the confusion has deepened. We worship our work, we work at our play, and we play at our worship. In worship, God deserves our very best. Our attention, our love, our passion, our, our humility. It's something we are created to do and we are called to do, and we will do it whether it's God or not. And so I want to close with a thought and then a question. The thought. One of the priorities that we have as a church is worship, and we define worship thusly. Worship is a wholehearted response to all that God is and all he has done. And wholehearted response means that our worship is not to be passive or partial. It is to involve all of us. To love God with all that we are and all that we do. And it is to be motivated and sustained by all that God has done and is doing and by who he is. Now the question. If we are created for worship and if we are constantly singing praises, what do we worship? What do we praise? I don't know about you, but sometimes I get this wrong, but I want to I want to worship God. I want to respond to him. I want that for you. I I want us to, to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ and be changed by worship as individuals and as a corporately as a church. And so I, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to sing a, a worship song and then Paul and, and Jessica are going to come out and, and close us with a, another worship song. But if you want to sing along with me, do. It's a song that sings of God's glory and his praise and, 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 and a song of worship for him. For thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. For Thou, O Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Please stand. We exalt Thee. We exalt Thee. We exalt Thee, O Lord. We exalt Thee. We exalt Thee. We exalt Thee, O Lord.